0: Crossview Radio, weekly podcast for Wayne County. I'm John Marino, pastor of Crossview Church in Orville. We exist to glorify God by exalting Christ and magnifying the gospel for the joy of all nations. So, last week we began a short series on repentance, and we looked at really two distortions. The first was the distortion that teaches that repentance is simply an act of the human will. And it failed to understand the uh, real necessity of divine intervention prior to repentance. And we explored that a little bit, and uh, Lord willing, we'll look at that in uh, some more detail uh, in a future episode. We did look at a second distortion, um, and we spent a little more time on that. And that was uh, the distortion that I called weaponized repentance, Uh, This really is judgment disguised as repentance, and so we wanted to avoid uh, those two distortions of repentance. Today I'd like to define repentance, and so to begin with, we'll uh, take a look briefly at uh, the word group in the New Testament that is most frequently translated as repent and repentance. Uh, This word group means change of mind, turning away, uh, the verb form means to feel remorse. And in the Old Testament, the word group that's most commonly translated as repent means to turn back or to return. And if you've noticed, these definitions can be separated into three distinct categories. So to say that repentance is a change of mind. Means obviously that repentance touches the mind, or we might say the intellect. To say that repentance means to feel remorse means that repentance touches the emotions. And to say that repentance means uh, turn away or return or turn back, it means that repentance touches the will. And so we want to include all three categories. In our definition of repentance, we have the category of the mind, we have the category of the emotions, and we have the category of the will. And so I'd like to explore these three categories briefly before we come up with our final definition. Uh, Let's address the intellectual aspect of repentance. To say that repentance touches the mind uh, or the intellect is to say that we need to understand how we have gone astray. We need to have an understanding, first of all, of our own sin. Secondly, we need to have an understanding of the holiness of God, and then our corresponding culpability to uh, for, for our sinfulness. We can't repent if we don't understand the need to repent, and that probably goes without saying. <clears throat> but um, it is demonstrated by the biblical text, in particular Isaiah six five. Uh, This is a well-known passage where Isaiah sees God, and he says, "'Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips.'" Uh, He he sees God first. He realizes his own sin. He cannot repent without that aspect. Uh, He must intellectually understand his plight. Um, In a similar vein, you have the prodigal son. He returns to his father— And the biblical text in Luke 15 and verse 17 says he first came to himself. In other words, there was a a realization, an intellectual understanding. Uh, We also see that uh, Jesus sent Paul to the Gentiles to open their eyes so that they may turn. Uh, In other words, the turning had to um, be uh, preceded by the the opening of their eyes. They had to see first. Um, They had to understand their problem and God's solution. So on this topic, the Puritan Thomas Watson says that sin must first be seen before it can be wept for. Hence, I infer that where there is no sight of sin, there can be no repentance. Uh, and I think Watson is, is right on that. We need to have a sight of sin, a knowledge of sin, an understanding of sin, a realization of where we are. And all of that is something that speaks to the intellect, uh, our understanding, or the mind. Uh, this, of course, is why we preach the gospel, because people need to see something intellectually so they know they have a problem, and, and thus repentance touches the mind. But it also touches the emotions— So take, for instance, uh, Joel 2, verses 12 through 13, where we see God calling his people to repentance. He says, "'Return to me with all of your heart,' an emotional aspect, "'with fasting and with weeping,' again, an emotional aspect, "'and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments.'" Uh, this, is, this is very full of uh, a, an emotional response of returning to the Lord. Jeremiah thirty-one nineteen, For after I had turned away, I relented. And after I was instructed, I struck my thigh. I was ashamed. I was confounded because I bore the disgrace of my youth. Uh, an emotional response to sinfulness. <clears throat> now... There is something that we need to say here about sorrow, and this is going to be really important because sorrow can be a little bit tricky. Um, One author states that two people displaying sorrow might draw their tears, quote, from two totally different wells, end quote. We need to be careful which well we're drawing our tears from. So, here's what we're saying. It is the motivation of my sorrow, not the presence of it that counts. There's a difference between grieving over sin and grieving over consequences. And I think the best case study of this in Scripture is found in the book of Hebrews, where we have a commentary on Esau from the Old Testament. Hebrews 12, 15 through 17. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. He found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Now, at first glance, when you read this passage in Hebrews 12, you could mistakenly believe that God was being unfair toward Esau. After all, Esau sought it with tears. He seemed genuine, but not so fast. We need to do a little bit of Greek homework to get at the bottom of this situation. I want you to notice, uh, and if you happen to have a Bible in front of you, pull it out and turn to Hebrews 12, uh, and we'll look at verse 17. Notice the pronoun in Hebrews 12 here, verse 17, the pronoun it. It. The passage says that he, that Esau sought it with tears. What is he seeking? Well, in English, it seems that the closest noun is the word repent. So, we would think that he was seeking the repentance. That's kind of makes sense. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it, the repentance, with tears. However, there are two contenders in this verse, two nouns that he could have been seeking. Uh, again, in English, we naturally think it's the closest noun to which, uh, to, to the pronoun. Uh, but it doesn't have to be in Greek. It, does, it, it is oftentimes, but it doesn't have to be. Um, we think, I think on a, on a surface reading, that he was seeking the repentance with tears. And then that makes us say, God seemed to be a little bit uh, unfair toward him because he was really trying to repent. But the noun repent does not agree, in in the Greek, with the pronoun it. It agrees with another noun in this passage. It agrees with the noun blessing. So both the word blessing, the noun blessing— And the pronoun it agree, they're both, if you care about this in the Greek, they're both feminine, singular, accusative. Repent is not. It's blessing and it. They are the ones that agree with one another, which means that we could say the verse this way. So I'm just going to replace the pronoun it with the noun that it's referring to. For you know that afterward... When he, des- when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought the blessing with tears. You see the difference there? Though he sought the blessing with tears. This should be abundantly clear. When you first read this passage, perhaps you may think to yourself, boy, God sure sounds unfair. Esau was seeking repentance and God rejected him. That is not the case. Esau was rejected because he was seeking the blessing instead of the repentance, and that is the very crystal clear difference to what's going on here in Esau's life. In fact, Esau's, Esau's sorrow is evidence not of his change of mind and a denial of his idol— but of his doubling down and his indulgence of his ruling passion. Esau's sorrow evidences that Esau still loves Esau and correspondingly hates God, which brings us to a very important point. Does your sorrow evidence your love of God or your love of yourself? To answer that question, you need to know what you're sorry for. Are you sorry for getting caught? Are you regretting getting caught? Or are you sorry for breaking God's word? Are you sorry for the consequences? Perhaps maybe you've engaged in some sort of sin and you want to get rid of that sin, but the distinction here is what is the reason you want to get rid of that sin? Do you want to get rid of it because it has some Really bad consequences, or do you want to get rid of it because it grieves the heart of your heavenly Father? Paul, the Apostle Paul, hits on this distinction very clearly in Second Corinthians chapter seven in verse ten. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. He contrasts godly grief and worldly grief. Godly grief produces repentance. Worldly grief produces death. And thus, we can take the paradigm here of 2 Corinthians 7.10 and use it as an overlay to understand Hebrews 12. When we do that, and we put 2 Corinthians 7, Hebrews 12, side by side— we recognize that Esau has worldly grief. He is sorry and he is he has sorrow, but it's he's not genuinely repentant. He's sorry that he doesn't have the blessing anymore. He's not sorry for his sin. And so here is the distinction as clear as I know how to say it. Worldly sorrow is when you mourn the disruption of your idolatrous, self-centered worship. Godly sorrow is when you mourn the disruption of your fellowship with your loving Heavenly Father. Know the difference in your own heart and seek your Father above all else. Let me say that that one more time. The difference is this. Worldly sorrow is when you mourn the disruption of your idolatrous, self-centered worship. Godly sorrow is when you mourn the disruption of your fellowship with your loving Heavenly Father. There's a very big difference in, those, in that distinction. Your emotional response must be genuine. And this, of course, as we've already noted, is the second aspect of repentance. And so we're just spending a moment to clarify here, simply, that while we say sorrow is part of repentance, it has to be a genuine sorrow. It has to be a sorrow that's over the right things, not just uh, over the fact that my, uh, idol, uh, I, my idol worship has been disrupted. Uh, that certainly is a worldly sorrow that leads to death. Um, but there's one more aspect of repentance, <clears throat> and we've already said that, and that's it involves your will. This is most clearly evident in the phrases, turn back. Or turning away or return. John the Baptist emphasizes this in his call to repentance when he says in Matthew three, eight, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Uh, involves action. It's an action item. The Apostle Paul associates repentance with action when he says that the Gentiles should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. That's in Acts 26, twenty six, twenty uh and and we could go on peter acts three twenty six isaiah isaiah fifty five seven they understand repentance to be synonymous with forsaking sin and wickedness, so for someone to return to God without turning from sin is to return only in pretense jeremiah three ten uh teaches that to return to God without returning or returning from sin is to return only in pretense. Um, In fact, I'll read that here. Yet for all this, Jeremiah 3.10, her treacherous sister Judah did not return to me with her whole heart, but in pretense, declares the Lord. So, you can kind of feign uh, turning to the Lord. You can um, perhaps uh, manufacture a fake turning to the Lord, but to do it without turning from sin is to do it only in pretense. So, the Bible affirms all three components of repentance. And so, I'm just going to give you my definition of repentance based on this brief study today. Biblical repentance is a change of mind regarding sin, judgment, and God's holiness, which afflicts the heart in sorrow and results in a turning away from wickedness. Biblical repentance is a change of mind regarding sin, judgment, and God's holiness, which afflicts the heart in sorrow and results in a turning away from wickedness. But there is one more problem, and C.S. Lewis hits on this problem perfectly. We're sinful people, right? And sinful people do sinful things, and we're totally depraved, and we need grace. And so in Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis says this, quote, the same badness which makes us need repentance makes us unable to do it, end quote. And so here's the question. If our sinfulness prevents us from repenting like we ought, what hope is there that we can do it? And for that, we'll have to wait till next time. Thanks for listening to Crossview Radio. I'm John Marino, pastor of Crossview Church in Orville. We meet Sundays at 10 a.m. at the Orville YMCA. To find out more about Crossview Church, visit us online at crossvieworville.com.